You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together this afternoon to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 1, the verses 26 to 38, and then Luke 1, 67 to 80. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Then we turn to the same chapter, verse 67. And we read about Zechariah's song after the birth of John the Baptist. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. On Sunday afternoons, we've been making our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, and of course we made our way rather slowly through Lord's Day 13 so that we could come to Lord's Day 14 on this particular Christmas afternoon. So Lord's Day 14, let's turn to that. What do you confess when you say he was conceived 
by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus, he is also the true seed of David and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, some would say that there are two things that stand out at Christmas time. The first thing is gifts. The second thing is miracles. No matter how hard a person may try, it is almost impossible to get away from the connection between gifts and Christmas. You may give them before the date, on the date, after the date. But the fact remains that around this time of year, someone is sure to give you something. And most likely you, in turn, will give something to someone else. Christmas and giving are intricately linked. And you know, if you think of it, it's not so surprising because the wise men from the East did not exactly show up at Bethlehem empty-handed. And what was the Apostle Paul thinking when he wrote, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You see, on Christmas we celebrate the greatest giver and the greatest gift. And as a result, we've been giving as Christians ever since. But you know, if there are gifts, there are also miracles, and they are too intimately connected with this great event. Baron Elizabeth conceives, what a miracle. An angel choir suddenly appears above the fields of Ephrathah. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall or on a sheep. What a miracle. Wise men come from the east. What another miracle. Foreigners. And Simeon, perhaps old age, Simeon sees the Christ at last. Another miracle. There's so many miracles attached to the Christmas story. But yet of them all, the greatest two haven't even yet been mentioned. And what are they? Well, they have to do with what the Apostles' Creed here confesses and what the Heidelberg Catechism explains. Namely, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary. You know, here we come face to face with two huge miracles, the Incarnation and the Virgin Birth. The Incarnation meaning God becomes man. The Virgin Birth meaning Christ is born through the power of the spirit of a virgin. And as such, they belong together. And we shall deal with them together as well on this special afternoon. I preach to you on the theme, Catechism Christmas, conceived by the spirit born of a virgin. And we're going to see that Christ is born as the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, and the son of David. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior has many 
fathers. First, there is God as heavenly father. And second, there are a host, a host of earthly human fathers. And we know about the heavenly father from what the angel Gabriel says, for he comes to Mary and tells her that she will be found or she has found favor with God. And that the baby to be born will be called the son of the most high. And we learn about all of his human fathers from those ancestry lists in Matthew 1 as well as in Luke 3. Now, of all of those human fathers, who's the most important? You'll notice that answer 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism mentions only one of them, and that is David. He also is the true seed of David. So we ask, is David his most important human father? He's probably mentioned most in the Bible. So is he it? Well, I would suggest to you, beloved, that while all of these human fathers are important, there are three, not one, who belong to the ranks of the most important. And who are those three? Well, they are Adam, Abraham, and David. They belong to the top Three on the chart, so to speak. But you might ask, why? Why did you pick Adam, Abraham, and David? Well, let's take them one by one. First of all, there is Adam. Notice he's specifically mentioned in Luke 3, in the third chapter there. Unlike Matthew, who begins with David and with Abraham, Luke begins, or perhaps you might want to say ends, with Adam. Luke calls Jesus the son of of Adam. Why does he do so? What's his motivation? Well, part of the reason may very well have to do with the fact that Luke is writing especially for the Gentiles. You know, we know that Matthew is concerned to get the gospel out to the Jews, whereas Luke, the doctor, the physician, wants to relate it to everyone else. He wants the whole world to know about Jesus. So where better to begin than with the father of the whole human race? With Adam. Jesus is the son of the father of mankind. He's related to all of us. But you know, that's not the only reason there's a deeper one. For Luke also wants his readers to realize that Jesus is... Not just the son of Adam, he's also the second Adam. And by the way, Luke's not the only one who speaks about this, because if you turn to the Apostle Paul, to what he writes in Romans 5, you can see that that Paul stresses the same thing, that Christ is the, the second Adam. Only then it's important to realize that while this father and this son are related... They're very, very different. For consider the first Adam. Jesus is not his only son or daughter or offspring. He's many offspring. Indeed, we are all of his offspring. We all have Adam, at the very least, in common. But we all have something else in common, too, and we have Adam's curse 
in common. For what did Adam do? He rebelled against God. And what did God do? God placed Adam under a curse. Adam, think of it, Adam who was made perfect, Adam who was made so well, so bright, so beautiful, so like God, fell into sin. Only he didn't fall alone. He dragged all of his offspring into sin as well. He pulled all of us into the mire with him. And you can read about that, too, if you want, in Genesis, for example, Genesis 5. There it says, when, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And he named him Seth. Now, you need to read that very carefully. What does it say? It says that God made man in his image and that Adam had a son in his own image and likeness. And that's the Bible's way of saying that that Adam is made in the image of God, but Seth is made in the image of Adam. So what's the difference? Well, while Adam was made in God's own righteous and holy image, Seth was made in Adam's fallen and corrupt image. Adam's fallen image, you see, spreads. He spreads it to his sons and to his daughters and to all mankind, and he spreads it also to us. Every one of us, by nature and origin, lives under the curse. The curse of sin. And what about Jesus? When he is born, will he to share Adam's curse and Adam's fall and Adam's sin? Will Adam's corrupt blood flow in his veins? No, it will not. And it will not because God decides to work a miracle, a miraculous birth. The angel comes to Mary and says that not Joseph, but rather the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow her. And that's really the Bible's way of saying that God pushes Joseph aside. But in pushing Joseph aside, he's really pushing Adam aside. That's God's way of saying, there's no way that my son, my special begotten son, will share the corrupt nature of his old father, Adam. There is no way that he will come into this world as just another infected, marred, imperfect human being. He's going to be special. He's going to be holy. He's going to be like Adam, his father, was before he fell into sin 
before he got all haughty, proud, and conceited and turned his back on me. Beloved, do you see what God is doing here? The world and the wise men of this world regard this, this virgin birth as fiction, as a huge, useless, improbable, illogical, silly fiction. They mock it, they knock it, they sock it with sarcasm. But I say to you, they're blind. They do not see that Jesus comes as he comes in order to make a new beginning for us. What good would another flawed, fallen son of Adam be to us? How can he help us, save us, redeem us? We need a new start. Yes, and with Jesus, our God makes a new start. He uses the Holy Spirit somehow. Don't ask me how to conceive a holy child in Mary. And this holy child breaks the stranglehold that sin and the fall have on the human race. You see, Christ is born as the second Adam in order to redeem all of those who are still sons and daughters of the first Adam. He comes to set us free, to wash away our sins, to renew us completely and to restore us forever. And you know, if that's not glorious news, I don't know what glorious news is all about. What happy and blessed tidings. Here, if you believe it, is the kind of news that can lift you out of the Christmas doldrums. Yes, you heard it right. For many of us, this may be the best of times, but for some of us, this is the worst of times. Have you ever noticed that, that Christmas time has a way of bringing all of life's pains and sorrows and heartaches so quickly to the surface? People are never as sentimental, as soft and malleable as they are at this time of year. So there's a lot of sadness, along with quite a bit of gladness. But there's a way to deal with also that sadness. And it has to do with looking very hard at Jesus, the Son of God, and with realizing just like Mary, that with his birth, the Lord has blessed us, blessed us with his favor. Well, then, beloved, if Jesus is the son of Adam, he is also the son of Abraham. And both Matthew and Luke remind us of this in their respective lists. Indeed, you'll notice that Matthew begins his list with Abraham. 
And that, of course, is not so surprising because, as we said, Matthew is writing especially for the Jews. He wants to show them that Jesus has impeccable Jewish credentials. He's truly a son of Abraham. Now, there is something that the Jews may need to realize, but you might ask yourself, so what? What does that matter to us? Well, the question arises, what do... Gentiles and Abraham have in common. On the surface, nothing. Nothing. There is no connection between us and Abraham unless, unless we believe. Through faith only. You and I are tied to Abraham. Scripture calls Abraham the father of all believers. So if you're a believer, you too are a son and daughter of Abraham. You might say, interesting, but how does this work? Well, it works through something called covenant. You can read about that in Genesis 12, 15, 17. Way back when, the sovereign God of heaven and earth called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And in time, he proceeded to make a covenant with Abraham and with his seed. What's a covenant? Well, you might know a covenant is an agreement. A covenant has sometimes been called a treaty. A covenant has also been called a sacred bond sealed with blood. The point is that a covenant is all about a relationship. And God's covenant is always about a special relationship, a relationship in which God comes to man and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And in it, God promises life and blessings, countless blessings to Abraham and his seed. And in it, he also calls on Abraham to serve him, obey him and love him. And if you think about it for a moment, this, beloved, is quite the deal. It's a great deal. It's an awesome deal. The holy, majestic, creator God of heaven and earth is willing to embrace us. And he calls on us to embrace him. If you want to talk about a lopsided relationship This is it. We get God, to put it very simply, and he gets us. But as you can imagine, there is a problem with this deal. For we have a hard, hard time keeping our end of the relationship. We find it impossible to love God only to serve him exclusively, to obey him completely. He is always, always faithful, but we always find ways to be unfaithful. And that's not a good thing. That's the way to void the covenant blessings and to bring upon your head the covenant curses. That's the way to turn God the Father into God the Judge. That's the way to hell. To put it bluntly, 
and not to heaven. So there's a problem here, a serious problem. And indeed, it's not just a problem, it's a roadblock. But wait. For who comes in the fullness of time? Is it not Jesus, the son of Adam, and the son of Abraham? Is it not Jesus who, when he comes, comes as the true and the perfect son of Abraham? For the God to the Holy Spirit does more than just push Adam aside. He also pushes Abraham aside. He takes Mary who shares in Abraham's flesh and blood and makes a new beginning. He gives Abraham a son. Only what a son. A special son. A son who, who keeps covenant truly, eternally, and perfectly. A son who pays for the covenant-breaking sins of all of his fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. Yes, Jesus comes as the true son of Abraham. And he brings many other sons and daughters to glory. He restores covenant fellowship, covenant communion. He guarantees it. He maintains it. And the result, beloved, is for all of those who believe in him, there's a home. There's a family. There's a great sense of belonging. If many people are sad at this time of year, it's true to say that many are lonely as well. But yet in and through God's covenant, we have this great antidote to our loneliness. So our through faith in the covenant mediator, Jesus Christ, we may know we have fellowship, communion, Union, togetherness with God and with his people. Our father and our mother may forsake us, but God never does. He'll be there for us in the brokenness of his life. And he'll be there for us in the fullness and the glory of the life to come. We always have a home. We always, through faith, have a father. We always have a glorious family. So Jesus is the son of Adam and the son of Abraham, and that brings us to his third important human father, David. What's the big deal with David? Why does Scripture spend a lot of time on David, and why should we spend time on David? Well, you might want to look at it this way. Adam has everything to do with curse. Abraham has everything to do with covenant. And David has everything to do with the crown. Because David is the king. He's the defender. He's the throne-sitter. David is the royal son. 
And as such, you can say he represents all the hopes and dreams and aspirations of his people. He's supposed to bring them relief and peace and justice and security and prosperity and all the other good things of life. So much is connected to David. And yet so little comes of David. His kingship in time becomes marred by murder, adultery, rebellion, and blood. He begins his reign with so much promise and he ends it with so much disappointment. And the crown, it kind of lurches along. It's worn by good sons, but mostly bad sons. It suffers setback after setback. Finally, it goes into exile. And, you know, in a sense, it never seems quite to recover. Why, by the time the New Testament opens, the crown is all but a forgotten dream. And David's line is even hard to find. David's line no longer has a throne, no longer has any power or influence. Very much a thing of the past. The glory days are long gone. But then, beloved, the angel Gabriel comes and he shatters the gloom. He he comes to Joseph and he tells him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Now, Joseph must have shook his head and wondered whether or not he had heard right. Did the angel call me son of David? I'm the son of Jacob. Yes, the angel called him son of David. And you know, the same angel goes to Mary and tells her about the Holy Spirit coming to her and conceiving a special child in her. And he even adds, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never, ever end. There you have it again, that talk of David, of a throne, of a great coming reign, and even of an endless throne. Just like Adam And just like Abraham, David is going to receive a son. Although he too fathers no son. And just as God pushes Adam aside and Abraham aside, so he he pushes David aside as well. And instead he calls on the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. You see, no matter what, David is going to receive a very special son and Lord. Yes, and this son will wear a crown and sit on a throne unlike any other throne. And you may know that's precisely what happened. Jesus, the son of David, is born, he preaches, he teaches, he does all kinds of miracles. He goes head to head with Pharisees and Sadducees and all the rest. And he suffers and he dies, but he does not remain dead. 
He rises from the dead. He ascends into the heavens. And that's where he is today. Indeed, he is seated. Seated on a throne. Seated on David's throne. Seated on high. Seated until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Yes, David's son sits on David's throne today. Oh, and how that particular truth injects massive hope into the lives of God's people everywhere. Today, many of God's people are but little people. We do not count. We do not make headlines. We have very little influence. In many places around this world, if you visit there, you find that Christians belong to the downtrodden, to the scum of the earth, to the despicable. In some places, we've become cannon fodder. The humanists mock us. The extreme followers of Islam despise us and murder us, as is going on this very day in Nigeria. The communists in China and elsewhere still hate us. At Christmas time, we so easily identify with Mary and with Joseph and consider ourselves to be among the forgotten people of the earth. But that's not the reality, beloved. For Jesus Christ is born. The son of David has come. He reigns today. And he will return tomorrow. Just wait and hope and pray and listen. For soon a command will ring out and a voice will be heard and a trumpet will sound. The son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David will come. Come clothed with the power and the splendor and the majesty of David and of God. So take heart. No matter what the world does to you, you can always be of good cheer. Our Savior has already. And he will show you one day how he has overcome the world. The Lord is merciful. He graciously delivers. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.